Welcome to the South Carolina State Library's podcast, Library Voices SC. I'm Curtis Rogers, Communications Director, and today I'm pleased to have with us in our studio Dr. Fritz Hamer. Fritz is the Curator of History and Archivist at the South Carolina Confederate Relic Room and Military Museum, and previously held posts at the South Carolina State Museum and the South Carolina Library at the University of South Carolina. He has published articles on the social and racial impact of World War II in Charleston and on the South Carolina home front in World War I, and has published books on the Charleston Navy Yard, South Carolina in the Great War, and on South Carolina college football history. He also served as president of the South Carolina Historical Association from 2001 to 2002 and 2011 to 2012. So welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you, Curtis. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And by the way, I will interject that I think I've known Fritz for probably about 24 years because I've worked here for 24 years. So, <laughs> Well, as I tell all of people at the State Library, this is the greatest agency in state government. Well, we love to hear that, and I did not pay him to say that. So, <laughs> well, I can, I can te- attest to it on many things you've helped me with over the years. Well, good. We're, we're glad to be here for you. Um, but anyway, what what we wanted to, uh, what I wanted to talk about with you today was um, something that I recently put out as a press release on a new uh, digitization project that we're um, working on with the South Carolina Confederate Relic Room and Military Museum, and. Um, Tell us a little bit about, uh, well, actually, before we talk about that, tell us a little bit about what the Confederate Relic Room is in general. Well, we're, we are a military history museum that focuses on the military history of South Carolinians. Um, and while it was begun back in 1896 by the United Daughters of the Confederacy with a focus primarily on uh, the Civil War and South Carolinians who served in the Confederate Army, mm-hmm. uh, it has evolved to be much more than that. Mm-hmm. Even in the early days, especially after World War I, the uh, women uh, who ran the relic room at that time began collecting things from South Carolinians who served in World War I, and they continued in other conflicts. Mm-hmm. But since um, the museum has been uh, under the direction of Alan Roberson, who took over in about 1999. Mm-hmm. We have really refocused our interpretation to be much broader than just the Civil War. Okay. And of course, we our permanent exhibits have a lot about the conflict. But um, we do discuss uh, also some of the later conflicts that we have served in up into Desert Storm and Desert oh, Shield. Oh, really? Okay. Um, and and then we have a a uh, a gallery in which we do changing shows, and mm-hmm. in those shows we've done a lot of I think fascinating stuff. Back in two thousand seven, uh, focused on World War One, um, and um, there's been uh, a big show we did on flags of the Civil War that the the museum had been collecting since the beginning of the twentieth century. And there was a big campaign to preserve those. Mm-hmm. And we were given a lot of help uh, from the UDC and the Sons of Confederate Veterans financially to do some of that work. Mm-hmm. And some of those flags are still on exhibit in the permanent gallery. Okay. And, um, and just to give you a foreshadow, uh, we are now in the midst of a big project to do uh, an exhibit on the Vietnam War. Oh, okay. And South Carolinians who served there. And that's scheduled to open in March of next year. Okay. 
Um, and as far as location, you're actually within the South Carolina State Museum, aren't you? That's correct. We are on the first floor. Uh, you go directly back from the main lobby of the State Museum through the glass atrium, mm-hmm. and you'll see our entrance. Uh, we try to make it very clear where we are, <laughs> right. um, but uh, people tend to lump us together with the State Museum. They come in sometimes thinking we're we're an adjunct or a part of the state museum we right. have to correct people on that right uh, yeah because yeah because you are a separate standalone yeah we have agency. our own board and and our, yeah we are a separate agency very small mm-hmm. i used to think the state museum agency was small but <laughs> relic room is much smaller how many staff do you have right now we have five full-time staff oh, okay and wow. then we have uh in, we have volunteers mm-hmm. <clears throat> as well as uh one or two Student interns, usually from um, the public history program at USC. Okay. All right. I love interns. They're, you know. <laughs> Especially when they're able to stay for, for more than a few months. That's right. That's always great. Yeah, I've had some really good interns in the, in the recent past. Um, but anyway, what I wanted to talk about with you today was uh, some of the work that we've been helping you with as far as digitization goes. And I know this is an ongoing project that we have with you because we happen to have a lot of digitization equipment. But um, the first uh, series or project I guess we've helped you with are the Colin J. McRae papers. And it's got a weird uh, phrase in here that even I don't understand what it means, but it's the Hughes Audit Series. So can you tell us what, what that's all about? Well, let's talk a little bit about McRae first. All right. Colin McRae was born in North Carolina, and at a young age, his family moved to Mississippi, like a lot of Carolinians did Mm -hmm. uh, from the 1820s on. And his father was quite a good businessman, and he he had a general store and was involved in all kinds of things. And when he died in about 1833, Colin McRae took that over and had the same acumen in business. Mm. Um, And then when the Civil War on the verge of the Civil War, he supported secession and was heavily involved in the provisional government of the Confederacy in Montgomery. Mm-hmm. He had moved to Mobile by that time. And um, he promoted secession. Uh, and then he uh, did everything he could in the early stages of, uh, of the new Confederate government to, uh, for businesses uh, to, to bring business into the state to the Confederacy, and particularly Alabama. And then he started uh, to work towards developing Selma's ironworks into a major uh, artillery Mm. uh, manufacturing center. And uh, because of his business abilities, in the spring of 1863, he was appointed the uh, prime um, Confederate agent Mm -hmm. in purchasing weapons and military hardware from England and the continent of Europe for the Confederate government. So he was the official procurement officer. Essentially. (laughs) Yeah, that's what we would probably call him now. Uh Um, And there'd been some problems before he got there. There were apparently rival Confederate agents competing with each other to acquire, purchase equipment Mm. to send uh, for the Confederate military. Mm And in doing so, the loans had been overdrawn. Mm. And so one of his main tasks when he got to Europe, got to Eng- well, actually he got to Paris uh, in the summer of 1863, was to resolve these issues and, imp- and fix them up so that uh, the credit of the Confederate government would 
would be uh, improved mm-hmm. and they can continue to acquire things. And he managed to do this by um, setting aside the large numbers of cotton mm. that was being shipped over through the blockade. Mm-hmm. And w- another big issue he had to deal with was um, this gentleman Hughes, Captain Hughes, who Caleb Hughes. Uh, he had been accused of uh, sort of uh, swindling the government, Confederate mm-hmm. government, in mm-hmm. purchasing. And to uh, clear his name, he made every document available about he, what he had been involved with in the previous couple of years from wow. 1861 through early 63. Mm-hmm. And those documents to us today as historians are very important mm-hmm. because they give us a good sense of what was acquired from various arms manufacturers, military equipment, uh, medicines, uh, and then were shipped over back to the to the south. Mm-hmm. And it's quite an amazing collection. I mean, mm-hmm. there's something like a thousand paper, uh, documents. A lot of them are ledgers of things that were purchased, the cost, mm-hmm. um, who was shipping them from England uh, to Bermuda, mm. and w- from where w- from which they would be reloaded onto blockade runners to mm-hmm. get through uh, to southern ports. And it's it's quite an array. I mean, you you come across um, purchase a thousand muskets, mm-hmm. price, um, and, you know, five hundred bayonets, mm-hmm. and then sometimes huge bolts of cloth. Woolen cloth for like uniforms. For uniforms, yeah. Um, what are some of the strangest items you've seen in the in the budget oh, lines? You would ask me that. <laughs> um, well, some of the medicines, you know, hmm. mercurous chloride. Oh. Now that was still, it was becoming more controversial, but it was still used fairly extensively mm-hmm. uh, for ailments. Is that where and, we and get mercurochrome from? I hope not. <laughs> Mercurous chloride, as we know today, is poisonous. Ah. But in those days, it was considered a cure for things like uh, stomach uh, problems, intestinal problems. It might even be for venereal disease. Wow. But it's got mercury in it. Oh, and it, while okay. it, it seemed to be a cure, it was really steadily poisoning people mm-hmm, as we know mm-hmm, today but mm-hmm. in those in the 1860s uh, medicine was still very primitive sure um, and while there were some um, physicians that didn't want to use it there mm-hmm. were still many that were mm-hmm. and if you look at the history of medicine um, you'll realize that what we consider medical education in those <laughs> days it was <laughs> uh, to say the least uh, minimal, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and uh, you know, if you could go to a doctor or a, a school and take classes for a, a year or two, mm-hmm. you'd get certified. Whether mm-hmm. you, you didn't really get examined that much, mm-hmm. and so it was a a very problematic <laughs> hit or profession, <miss. laughs> very hit or miss. Mm-hmm. So, so back to McRae and Hughes. How, how what was their interaction like? Well, Hughes was very open about what he had done mm-hmm. because he was very sure that he was innocent. Mm. And uh, McRae praised him for making all these documents available. And he and another gentleman reviewed them 
And as they reviewed them, they found that uh, Trenum and Sons, who, who a lot of their business had been done through Hughes, had been cheating, overcharging the Confederate mm. government. Mm-hmm. And they cleared Hughes's name through this investigation and were able to get uh, Trenum, uh, not Trenum, but uh, Fraser and Company, I should say, mm-hmm. to um, pay back. Uh, reimburse the Confederate government for these overcharges. Hmm. And from the time, from once that was solved and th- until the end of the Civil War, uh, the credit of the Confederate government uh, was in, held in high stead by businesses in Europe and continued to provide equipment uh, to the Confederate armies. Mm-hmm. Um, and as historians over the last couple of years, such as Stephen Wise, have shown, uh, there was a lot of material getting through the blockade right up until almost the very end. Hmm. The problem was once it got into ports, and of course the ports were less than, uh, were shutting down, mm-hmm. but they, once they got the ports, it was hard to get the material sent to where it was needed because sure. the railway system in the South was degrading steadily, and by the middle of the war it was in really bad shape. Just because of lack of upkeep, or lack of upkeep, they didn't couldn't replace equipment, mm-hmm. um, and um, so that was a big failing in the end mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. for the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if if someone was looking at this collection online, and by the way, if you go to our um, podcast page, you'll see the links to directly the um, Colin J. McCrane Papers Hughes Audit Series. Um, why? What makes it important to researchers and to libraries? What, what can they glean from, from all of these primary documents? Well, they can get a, a real sense of what was being ordered and mm-hmm. supplied by mm-hmm. companies in England and to a lesser degree uh, Austria and in France to some degree. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the, the importance, really, of all this equipment to the Confederate military. Mm-hmm. I mean, we generally have known that the South didn't have the uh, wherewithal, the manufacturing base, to produce anywhere near what they needed sure. to, to support a military force. Mm-hmm. But this really gives us the data to show how important these uh, this equipment, this weaponry was to the Confederate government. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and also, I guess you could say how willing mm-hmm. uh, these foreign manufacturers were to supply the Confederate government. Of course, they were also supplying the Union mm-hmm. when they were called upon. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Union did order some things, but mo- they were able to make most of what they needed for their military. Mm-hmm. Because they had a manufacturing base that had been developing since the 1820s and 30s, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's uh, and it's virtually one of a kind collection. And what we're talking about, the Hughes collection, is mm-hmm. just is but one of the largest series. But there's there's a dozen and a half more series uh, mm. with uh, that are of much smaller, generally of smaller uh, size, mm-hmm. that look at shipping manufacturing in a few cases um, uh, and other businesses manufacturers and then there's also the personal collection 
of McCray mm-hmm. with his family letters during, before, during, and after the war. Oh, okay. Uh, and we, well, that is uh, available. We have not made that a prime part of this digital project at this mm-hmm. point mm-hmm. Um, because while it's important, it's not quite as, I don't think it's as significant in terms of the uniqueness that the Hughes Collection and some of the other parts are. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, our hope will be to have the whole collection uh, digitized, mm-hmm. but that's going to take several years to do. Yeah, it, uh, it unless it uh, somehow <laughs> uh, we find a sugar daddy that right. wants to uh, finance this uh, exactly. with gusto. Yeah, it it is amazing the time that goes into digitization projects because, you know, we here at the state library we actually have uh, librarians who focus on metadata, so they have to know what each digitized object or item is all about so that it can be properly cataloged. And and another one of the issues that you have to get into is the optical character recognition because a lot of these documents are written in a beautiful artistic script that is very difficult to translate into digital format. Yes. Well, I'm familiar with some of the techniques. Um, I first was aware of it when I was working on that World War I project back in 2007, mm-hmm. where I was instructed to do the metadata. I had uh-huh. no clue what it was. Right. And, um, but uh, my brief time at the Carolinian Library, I, I got a better sense of what it was all about mm-hmm. and how important it is to have that detail. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it can be very repetitive, mm-hmm. especially if you have a large col- uh, sub-series such as the Hughes Collection, but mm-hmm. that's important. And uh, so you, uh, you have to have people that, are, that know what they're doing uh, or at least students that are under uh, close um, a supervision mm-hmm. uh, because uh, you can easily make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I think uh, Amanda, who took this project on with great gusto, and mm-hmm. I'm so pleased she did, I think they've in the neighborhood now of four or 500 documents mm-hmm. that have been scanned, mm-hmm. and probably at least 400 are up uh, on the, uh, the site mm-hmm. that people can use. Um, and we know that there's a lot of interest by Civil War historians and historians of economic history of that period Mm. that use it. We get contacts periodically from people both in the United States and overseas. Oh, really? So that um, once they know this is online, it'll Mm -hmm. help them more and more as more stuff becomes available. Sure. Um, So a lot of people, you know, are, are looking for this kind of information. Are they you know, is it very scholarly? Are they working on dissertations, or are they doing papers, or what? What kind of research? It, are it varies. Doing? I I remember my first few months uh, at the Relic Room. I was contacted by a graduate student at I think where was it? Was it UNLV? Mm-hmm. Who was doing something on the fabric of this of the Confederacy, and mm-hmm. she wanted papers or ledgers from this series about mm-hmm. that. So I. I copied material, which at that time, that's the only way I could do it. Right, yeah, just make a photocopy. And sent it to her. Um, and But we've had uh, major scholars in England that mm-hmm. have inquired about it before I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't had any inquiries of late mm-hmm. uh, on it. I'm hoping that people are using uh, the uh, 
the collection on online. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But of course, you know, that's just partial. But, you know, unless you're doing a very extensive study of military hardware or the economics of it, right. there's probably enough there to, to um, work in, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. get a sense of some of the work that, uh, the business that the Confederate government was doing overseas. Sure. Is this, uh, would, would any of this be of any interest to genealogical researchers? I mean, other than just learning more about the individuals who were... were well, uh, I guess I would say at this stage, not too much, mm-hmm. uh, unless you're interested in uh, the crewmen, uh, oh. which were primarily uh, seamen from Britain okay. or other, that were manning these ships that were bringing the equipment from England to Bermuda primarily. Mm-hmm. So, the sh- uh, so, so there's going to be ship logs? Yeah, or? there's ship logs uh, s- from the captain showing, the, in some cases, the wages owed to the crewmen, ah. uh, which is kind of interesting mm-hmm. in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if somebody is perhaps looking for an ancestor that was involved in uh, seafaring work, mm-hmm. possibly they mm-hmm. might show up there. Well, especially um, military historians, like I can imagine if they're looking for specific information on, you know, the, the different kinds of um, equipment that's being used or, or anything. Well, like it's, yeah, it's being ordered. You know, the other, some of the other odd things is paper, you know, really? and ink because military units keep records. Okay. I mean, that's an important part of the military culture. Mm-hmm. And um, even though uh, the preservation of a lot of these are, weren't the best, we— you know, they had to have forms, and right. they had to order a lot of that from England. Okay. And so you'll see reams of paper uh, or the equivalent that they used at the time being ordered with uh, quill pens mm-hmm. and ink. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, you know, record keeping was essential and is essential in any military organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so some of those forms s- survive today in different different depositories. And you know that makes you think if they're ordering lots of paper is that not only for their records but did they ever give paper and and pens to um, the soldiers to be able to write relatives or anything like that? That I would think would be less likely mm-hmm. um, especially later in the war mm-hmm. because the shortages were so right. large. Officers may have had access to it, mm-hmm. uh, but enlisted men less likely. And also we have to keep in mind that a lot of enlisted men were semi-literate or illiterate. Sure. Um, and so the only way they could write was if they had a, co- a comrade who could write for them. And I've seen some of that. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. It'd um, be interesting, for example, there was some letters that were donated to the State Museum some 20 years ago mm-hmm. by a enlisted man <coughs> who served in in the West mm. and he was writing these letters and you know they are the the, the grammar we'll say is <laughs> less than ideal or, uh-huh. no, or the spelling uh-huh. and as you read through them you could see some letters were written better than others mm-hmm. so it became pretty clear that this fellow was having different people write the letters on his behalf. Oh, I got you. And looking at that at again, I wonder if there w- it would be a way to check the origins of the paper they're written on. 
Yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought of that. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so much. You know, when you talk about a project like this, there's so much that goes down to the nuance level that, you know, because you, you don't think that someone might be interested in the fabrics that are coming from England or... Um, you know, paper or, or anything like that. You just yeah, I mean, there, there are some um, historians and living historians who have really gotten into the fabrics. There's a gentleman in Camden that really knows fabrics very hmm. well, and he can look at a fabric and say, well, this was done in 1864, oh, or wow. this was done in 1862, yeah. and this was, was turned into a uniform in Richmond, or mm -hmm. say, maybe... Charleston early in the war. Wow, that's amazing. Um, and so there are people out there that really get into the minutiae. Mm -hmm. And then you have other people like Mark Smith, mm -hmm. the historian at USC, who's been looking at the senses and how to tell the history of senses in, say, battles. Wow. Smells, mm -hmm. hearing, mm -hmm. so forth. Uh, some people think that's maybe going little too far a little but too it, esoteric. It, it's <laughs> you know it's an interesting approach because all of that uh, affected people at the time in different ways mm -hmm. and you know there were probably a lot of different smell smells in those days that we don't get today mm -hmm. how did that affect what was the smell on a battlefield now probably it's not that different from what a smell on a battlefield Death is today and decay yes. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's not pleasant no I can't imagine um, so anything else about McRae or Hughes that, that people should be aware of if they're Well, up you know, the interesting collection? thing about McRae is once uh, the war ended, mm -hmm. he was in a precarious position because the federal government in Washington th uh, took him to court because they thought he had uh, squirreled away funds from the Confederate government that mm -hmm. they wanted back. Mm -hmm. And uh, so... The federal government s took him to court in England, or oh, tried really? to. Now, the court in England threw out the case mm -hmm. by 1870, mm -hmm. but McRae left England in 1867 and ended up in British Honduras, now oh, wow. Belize. Okay. Um, and he just, uh, he never received a pardon, and so he thought it would be too dangerous for him to return to the United States, so he mm -hmm. never did. Mm -hmm. He set up a plantation in Belize wow. and continued his business interests there. His sister visited him a few times uh, from Mobile, mm -hmm. and in his will, he donated all of his personal possessions to uh, the, I guess, the nephew and niece of his other sister. Mm -hmm. So he, when he died in 1877, at some point after his death, we assume, mm -hmm. it's not clear, mm -hmm. these a lot of various things were w willed to these uh, two younger uh, descendants. Mm -hmm. We're not sure when the papers came back to the United States, mm -hmm. but some at some point, pr probably in the latter stages of the 19th century, early 20th century, they ended up in a house in Mobile mm -hmm. that was part of his sister's family. Mm -hmm. And they were sitting in an attic for decades, mm -hmm. a century. Uh, and when the house was purchased by an outside interest in 2002, mm -hmm. they discovered these papers up there. Really, and and I guess it was through the, f I guess some um, collectors mm -hmm. 
contacted the family, our institution found them and was able to acquire them and brought them back to South Carolina in 2006. Wow. And my predecessors have gone through them, reorganized them Mm -hmm. into the series that they're in now. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have this huge booklet here that gives a brief description of every document. Wow. Uh, And uh, so now that we have access, you Mm -hmm. know, if a researcher wants a particular thing, we can find it pretty easily Mm -hmm. through this catalog that was put together. Mm -hmm. And through this, you know, we're steadily, you know, this project here of uh, digitizing the material. It really is amazing what people find in attics. (laughs) Yes, it is. And uh, you, you think everything's been found but right, every no. every year or two something, something new pops up something new that we thought was lost reappears and amazing. this is one of those examples well we're we're glad to be able to help with with this project cuz um and and ongoing you know to to make sure that this kind of information is available not only to people in South Carolina but to people anywhere with internet access right yeah i mean that's the the beauty of uh the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people think that that somewhat hurts an institution because mm-hmm. it doesn't bring people to you, but actually it promotes you. Yeah, uh, It definitely. really shows that you're more than just a little uh, mm-hmm. institution in Columbia, South Carolina, that you mm-hmm. have important material that uh, is useful to a worldwide audience interested in the American Civil War. Right, and for some people, you know, if they are doing research and they're particularly interested in a, a collection like this, looking at it online is one thing to be able to do their research, but there's still that face-to-face, and you still would have someone who's going to, you know, want to make the journey to see them in person because it's a it's a different experience. Sure. I, and I think, yeah, it, it'll, it introduces people to it online, mm-hmm. and if they're really serious in the research they're doing, they're probably going to want to uh, come and see the real thing eventually. Because, mm-hmm. like you said, not everything's online. I mean, no, there's, no. You, there's still. And, a lot. and as I say, you know, we're right now just touching the, mm-hmm. the tip of the iceberg with the McRae collection. Like what, 5%? Or, I mean. Maybe less than that. Wow. That, that uh, is not a but, lot. But. Uh, you know, that's we do the best we can. That's right. With your assistance, <laughs> um, and as I said, you know, sometimes you get lucky, and somebody peers with wants to fund it. Yeah. Uh, so it might speed it up. Definitely. We won't anticipate that, but we mm-hmm. can always hope. Right. Um, so you did mention earlier uh, about the Vietnam exhibit in March. What other kind of special projects are you working on in the coming months? Well, we're going to do. Uh, we're opening a small exhibit on the 30th Division and uh, <clears throat> its role in World War I. Mm-hmm. The 30th Division was uh, formed uh, here at the beginning of our entrance in the war and trained at Camp Severe in Greenville. Mm. And the 118th Regiment was made up as primarily of South Carolinians. Mm-hmm. The others were made up of Tennesseans and North Carolinians. Mm-hmm. And so this is going to look briefly at um, the training they they underwent here and then more training in Western Front and where they paid a key role in breaking through the Hindenburg Line in the late summer and fall of 1918 that ended World War I. Wow. Um, so we have Jim Legg, who's an archaeologist at the South Carolina Institute of Archaeology and Anthropology, mm-hmm. 
really putting the exhibit together, uh, selecting the artifacts, writing the main copy mm-hmm. with the help of uh, Jared Metz, who is a, a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, where the plan is for this to open on the 26th of October this year. Okay. Great. Mm-hmm. And we have some programs related to it. Jim will be talking about it, the history of it. Jared Metz will. Mm-hmm. Um, also of interest, perhaps, uh, if you uh, have uh, any interest in First World War, we're going to have a, a um, series of presentations on aviation in World War I mm. um, on the 29th of September. That's okay. a Saturday. Uh, Joe Long, my colleague at the museum, will be talking about balloonists mm. and dirigibles, and I'll be talking about World War One pilots mm-hmm. from South Carolina. Uh, things, people like Elliot White Springs, particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're going to have an, an author of a new book about the com- uh, competition, uh, early aviation competition from the West Coast to Hawaii. Oh wow! Uh, that will wrap it up. And uh, he, his new book will be available for people uh, if they would like to purchase. Great. So uh, look forward to more information about that in and the people coming can, weeks. People can find all that at your website, correct? That's right. That's crr.sc.gov, and we'll have a link to that on our, our web page as well. So thank you again so much for being with us today. Always enjoy being here, Curtis. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. You can find Library Voices SC on Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio or add us on your favorite podcast app. Our podcast website address is libraryvoices.podbean.com. We love hearing from our listeners, so send us your comments and suggestions for future topics. Library Voices SC is the official podcast of the South Carolina State Library. Until next time, this is Curtis Rogers. Thanks for listening.